says, God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. The Reverend Shelley Fayette, a priest in Seattle, wrote this week of her longing for a set of truly biblical Christmas pageants, one for each gospel. In the play for the Gospel of Mark, she imagined the congregation arriving for the Christmas Eve service for 15 minutes of complete silence in the dark. As they arrived, everyone would be handed a tiny scroll that read, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. After the 15 minutes of silence in the dark had transpired, suddenly a very hairy man with bugs on his face would jump down from the rafters, (coughs) screaming, Repent! As it happens, we are signing children and youth up for our pageant at 5 p.m. on Christmas Eve. Don't worry, I have already been overruled by our volunteers and staff. We will have a very traditional pageant, uh, but all are welcome to participate. No bug-covered men will be jumping down, and we don't have rafters to perch on anyway. My colleague's imaginative piece of proposed performance art does give a little bit of an imagination to the shadowy character of John the Baptist. And John features at the beginning of every one of the Gospels. And such consistency is rare for the Bible. In each account, John quotes Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. And each Gospel elaborates on John the Baptist a little bit. Matthew tells us that he ate locusts and wild honey. Mark clothes him in a coat of camel hair, perhaps the source of the bugs, and a leather belt. Luke gives John words on ethics, which the church saves for next week's reading. Luke also gives John a bit more backstory and specificity about the timing of John's preaching. All those rulers that Chester so capably pronounced, all those names, it tells us that this preaching occurred in about the year 29 of the Common Era. While the details vary a bit, John's constant presence is significant. Every one of the Gospels clearly paints John as a forerunner to Jesus, a hype man for the coming Christ. Many modern scholars believe that John's constant presence in the Gospels, it marks a tension between the two characters, the two communities around John and Jesus, the men Luke tells us were cousins. Were John and Jesus competing preachers? Were they both trying to attract the same followers? If so, scholars say, John the baptizer might have been more successful, at least at first. Based on the Gospels and the history written by Josephus, it seems at least early on that John was regarded as a bigger threat. Herod Antipas imprisons John the Baptist, eventually has him beheaded, because he's worried that the preacher could turn the tide. Modern scholars wonder, Do the Gospels mention John again and again, constantly giving John the honor of prophesying Jesus so that they can keep this very capable preacher John in his place? This morning my answer is maybe, but I want to push a little bit further. This second Sunday of Advent, I'm continuing a short series of sermons on the topic, Hope. 
If all we do with John is wonder with the modern scholars about whether he was Jesus' competitor, I think we're in a bit of danger. We risk missing out on the hope John offers, a hope which is bigger than self. Following the gospel narratives, John the Baptist sees in Jesus something bigger. Though on his own he appears wildly successful, John finds in Jesus hope beyond himself. John points to a higher power. John must have been a phenomenal preacher. His words were so powerful that folks were willing to overlook his appearance, his anger, his smell. John gathered a following before Jesus. Fancy Jerusalemites made their way down from the mountain to the desert to be baptized by John in Jordan's muddy waters. John had power, real power. He had a compelling message and that Pied Piper quality. But John knew John knew that he, he wasn't the answer. John had hope in something bigger than himself. The 12 steppers in the congregation will recognize that language. We admitted we were powerless, that our lives had become unmanageable. We came to believe that a greater power than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. Each week, hundreds of people gather here at Holy Communion. On Friday evenings and Thursday nights and Monday mornings, they keep coming back. They come back because the steps work if you work them. Committing your life to God, to a higher power, really can get you out of the deepest rut. I've said this to you before, but two Episcopal monks who happened to be recovering addicts were among my most important early spiritual directors. Recovering addicts will tell you everyone needs a power bigger than themselves. Everyone. Two weeks ago, the New York Times Sunday edition ran a piece by Ruth Whitman, best-selling author. She writes about today's gig economy and social media. She writes about how many of us have a hustle, especially online. More and more of my friends and minor celebrities that I follow, they've become influencers. And their posts try to sell me makeup or get me to visit their Etsy shop or contribute to the crowdfund for their kidney transplant. It's as though we are all working in Walmart on an endless Black Friday of the soul, Whitman says. Social media functions on a quiet ask. Build a brand. Sell yourself. Whether you're being paid in actual dollars or in in likes and comments, the psychology works similarly. Photograph only the prettiest parts of life. Make smart observations about every political twist and turn. Post frequently so that others know how happy you are, how smart, how retweetable. Gain more followers. There's a dark competition built into that system. To whom do we compare ourselves? Do we have more likes than our sister? More retweets than our colleague? More followers than our cousin? Are we only as valuable as the number of click-throughs we generate? Social media may be the latest medium in which we play the game, but in America, the grass has always been greener in the neighbor's yard. 
Even the hustle isn't really new. Tupperware, Mary Kay, and Avon have long encouraged our relations to hawk goods on the side. If you've got a side gig, know that a priest has no room to criticize the hustle. If you follow me on social media, you'll be invited to contribute to causes I believe in all the time. But Whitman's article raises a question about how we engage the work of the hustle. How do we engage social media? For that matter, how do we survive family holidays and work Christmas parties and all of the opportunities for quiet competition that surround the holiday seasons? How do we survive all those beautiful Christmas cards that arrive to our house showing picture-perfect lives? How do we relate? How do we maintain our sense of value, our sense of self? John the Baptizer's word this Advent can sound startling, repent. It'd be worse if he yelled it as he jumped down from the rafters. But this baptism of repentance John was preaching might also be heard as an invitation. Hear me out. The original, the Greek for repentance is metanoia, literally a change of mind, a shift in mentality. The word forgiveness used here in the gospel, it's actually closer to a release from bondage. Could we hear the Advent invitation in John's slightly scary words a bit differently? Shift your pattern of thinking. Be released from the anxieties and relentless drive to sell yourself, to rate yourself. Let go of your need to prove yourself, to make yourself, to save yourself. Can you hear that invitation, that hope, even from a dusty, camel-hair-wearing, locust and wild honey-eating prophet, even across the centuries? Can you hear that hope? Some of the best spiritual advice I ever received came from an awful, chintzy plaque that my resident advisor, my RA, had on her door in college. She was from Georgia, and some of the decor that she picked out must have come from one of those big southern truck stops. <laughs> the sign was tin and over large, and it had artificial rust around the edges. But the plaque said simply, let go and let God. I find I often return to those words. When I get myself worked up at work, when I'm frustrated or anxious about a project, when I can't get a sermon to write itself, I return to these simple words. Let go and let God. I think John the Baptist knew something of this wisdom. He was able to say, like St. Paul, I must decrease so that Christ might increase. John knew he wasn't the answer to his own problems. He knew he wasn't the answer to others either. Theologically speaking, self-righteousness is an oxymoron. You can't be righteous by yourself. We are only set right in relationship. You can't save yourself. You can't. You're not Jesus. None of us is Jesus. Especially not me. If you have doubts, ask my spouse. You'll do better if you remind yourself I'm not Jesus. I'm not God. And because you aren't Jesus, there is room for grace. There is hope. You aren't in this alone. 
You don't have to solve it all. It does not all rest on you. You don't have to win. Not the beauty pageant, not the argument or the coveted position at work, not even the neighborhood Christmas light competition. You don't need to win. You are free to set your hope elsewhere. You are free to choose a different way beyond the self. With John, you can point your life to God in Christ. Now, setting our hope on Christ is difficult. I wish I could give you a simple answer. This isn't the church of simple answers. Jesus was a complex human being. He was born in a difficult political reality. He defied the expectations of his followers. If someone had asked Peter, James, John, and Mary Magdalene, what would Jesus do? The disciples probably would have responded, we have no idea. The guy is unpredictable. He flips tables in the temples. He makes the Pharisees mad. We never know what he's going to say. If Jesus' earthly life points to God's reality, our God is complicated. Letting go and letting God is not a simple and easy plan. Letting go and letting God may lead you down paths you never expected, may require more of you than you ever anticipated offering. Setting your hope on Christ means learning to be comfortable following hunches, living with ambiguity, and especially serving among people who our society would keep at arm's length. But there are moments, lasting moments, when the, light, when the light breaks forth. In the midst of all the complexity, something clicks. We see a smile, share an unanticipated moment with an unexpected new friend. We realize we could never have manufactured this joy on our own. We have what my RA's sign makers might have called a God moment. This Advent, could John, the bedraggled saint, point us to a better way? Can we let the recovering addicts, those who have done the work and kept coming back, can we let them be our guides? Can we trust even the unexpected signs? Together they point toward the inexact work of setting our hope beyond ourselves. Can we trust in that higher power? in the wild and unexpected God known to us in Christ Jesus. Maybe the modern scholars have a point. Maybe there were tensions in the first century between John and Jesus, or between John's disciples and Jesus's. Maybe it took more time than Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John led on for the differences to settle out. But the consistent claim in the Gospels renders an outstanding verdict. John knew he wasn't the answer. John pointed to Jesus. John the Baptist may be the saint we need most in our competitive day, in our day of self-reliance. John was able to set aside his own success, his own sense of accomplishment. John was able to lay aside security, prestige, and his own power. John pointed ahead to a higher power. This Advent, will you let go? Will you let God? Will you set your hope on nothing less than Christ Jesus? Amen.